Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. On today's episode, we are heading to London to speak with Vanessa Potter. Vanessa is a self-experimenting author, producer, TEDx speaker, and wellness advocate. Her latest book is entitled Finding My Right Mind, One Woman's Experiment to Put Meditation to the Test. So, Vanessa, welcome to the RV. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, of course. So, Vanessa, I've been to London twice, but only for a few days. In your opinion, what is the best thing about living in London? Oh, I mean, I've lived here a long time and I think it has to be the mix of people. It's a very cosmopolitan city. And, and it's funny because people think cities aren't very friendly, but actually they are. And I live in an area called Crystal Palace and it's super friendly here. And I love that. I love that. I know lots of people and those people come from a vast array of backgrounds and stories. And so, yeah, it's the people that I love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I just remember that I had a blast today. I just love London. So maybe I'll go back one day. And you worked as a television producer and even received an award. Then you had to stop your career suddenly. Can you tell us, Vanessa, what happened? Yeah, I, I was a very busy TV producer. I had two small children, so my life was like living on a motorway. I was rushing home from work to pick up the kids and uh, it was all a bit crazy. And I, I'd actually just gone freelance and yeah, life did that thing. It threw a curveball at me. And uh, in October 2012, I basically um, experienced a very, very rare autoimmune neurological illness that within 72 hours had left me blind and paralyzed, which was, you know, that was, uh, it knocks your socks off. It stops you in your tracks. And it took a year for me to recover. And during that year, um, my whole life changed, not least because I um, had to recover. I had to regain my sight. That took um, uh, about nine, nine, 10 months for that to happen. And I had to learn how to walk. I had to learn how to feed myself again. So I, there was a lot of change. And that took me on a whole new journey, which has yeah, led to everything subsequently. That's incredible. So you woke up blind and paralyzed. And I believe it must be very traumatic, Vanessa. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, if, of course it is. But it's funny because I was a trained producer. So my job was to respond to situations. And so actually, in the early days, I was being a producer. So I was kind of producing everything around me. And I knew I was very ill. And there was something really dramatic happening. But for instance, I started documenting everything from the very first day, which when I look back, seems totally mad but it was the producer instinct to to kind of I suppose to control to an extent but also to have this log and I'm so glad I did that um 
so yes, it was very traumatic. It was very frightening. Um, my whole body shook because my nervous system, my autonomic nervous system just went haywire. And, th and the paralysis um, kind of was this slow creeping thing. It crept up my body, up my hands first and up my feet and then and, and up my legs. And that just left me bedridden. And the, and the vision did a similar thing in that it kind of slowly faded. It took 72 hours, but you know, every hour, every blink was washing away more vision. And that was an extraordinarily frightening thing. And, but you kind of go into a slight freeze state, a kind of shock, extended shock. Um, and I was using a lot of um, breathing techniques. I'd had children not so long before. So I used a lot of slow yogic breathing and that was really helpful. And I um, used some meditation, uh, visualization skills, um, and I was trying to manage this situation. So I suppose even though it was very traumatic, I was, I was doing mind management even from those early days, rooting through all the things I had, you know, sitting dormant in my mind, any, any kind of resilience tool that was there, I was grabbing and using. <laughs> And you said uh, that you became a human guinea pig for science. So how did it happen? Yeah, that is the only way to describe what I did. Um, during that year of recovery, I became very, very curious. curious. And, and curiosity has been kind of my res biggest resilience tool because it's a forward moving kind of thing. It, it makes you investigate, question, but also it's got this kind of openness to it. So I started researching what had happened to me. And during my visual recovery, lots of weird things happened. Things like I only saw um, sort of black and white clouds to begin with. My, my vision went to nothing. It went to completely black. And then I would see like these silvery outlines. And I remember one time I, I could feel this movement below and it took me about half the day to realize I'd been staring at my own arms. I mean, I literally couldn't see anything. But then the world started to come together in this very strange way. And it came back in layers, did my vision. So I'd see contrast, I'd see contrast, so darks and lights. And then I'd see grain, there would be kind of like hazy silvery shapes. And, and so I started documenting all of my recovery. I did lots of experiments at home, like measuring at what distance I could start to see road signs. Color didn't come back for three or four months. And that was very weird. Um, colors would flash up intermittently not like full color, like very dull color. And also I would feel a color rather than see it. So I had these um, emotional connections and links, you know, historical links, because I knew how to see. And my visual system was coming back online, but it was coming, you know, a bit like a, a, a fuse connecting and it was in, in sporadic bursts. And so suddenly I would see a little bit of like a a, a muddy blue or a muddy red and, and I would feel the color rather than actually see it which was and I was like why why is this so so I had I, I recorded a lot of data I, I did an audio recording tapes and I kept diaries and I started to put together a neuroscience exhibition I didn't call it that at the time it was just lots of ideas I was a creative that's what I did and I wanted to use film and all sorts of interactive immersive medias to tell my story because I just thought, you know, this could be really interesting. Surely surely a scientist out there somewhere would be interested. And that was pretty much what I kind of said, surely there is. And actually there was. Um, I was um, through a number of different people put in contact with uh, a neuroscientist called Dr. Tristan Beckenstein at Cambridge University. And by this time I'd 
had devised a um, uh, a neuroscience exhibition that used EEG. Uh, and that's where you have little electrodes put on your scalp and they can record your live brain frequencies. So this is a very useful, it's a medical tool, but neuroscientists use it to see if someone has got any neurological conditions. It's very good for epilepsy, for example. And so they use it for a diagnostic tool. But it's also a really good way of seeing what state of mind you're in. And so I went to them and I had this idea where I... I mentioned I use meditation and visualization. And I said, look, guys, you know, I've got this story to tell. I think the stuff you can learn, you know, the public could learn about their brains through my story. Um, and I, I would I'd like to show people what I did. And actually, I visualized a beach. That was the whole premise of my idea. And this beach was this beautiful, serene, relaxing place. And it was part of the breathing techniques that I, I'd been using. And I use, I have to say, I use this for the whole year that I was recovering. It wasn't just when I was, you know, the acute stage. And it worked, you know, it really calmed my body and it calmed my mind and it gave me something that I could do that was actively engaging with the recovery process. And I thought, you know, rather than just talk about this, I said, could we put an EG cap on me? Can you record my brain frequency? And can we show people that? And they kind of went, yeah. <laughs> and so what, what happened from a, a very amusing conversation, because Tristan's a very creative neuroscientist, which is great. The long story short is we translated initially my brain brainwaves into music and art. And we also translated the public's mindful brainwaves into music and art. And it was an, a, an interactive immersive exhibition called The Beach launched at... The Cambridge Science Festival, it was actually in 2015 in the end. And that was amazing. 120 people came and wore an EEG cap and tried to meditate a little bit. And we showed them what their brain looked like while they were actively trying to meditate. And we also showed them what their brain looked like when they were not meditating. You know, we, we, we took a baseline, like a, you know, a um, shopping list, thinking just, you know, oh, the argument I had with my husband this morning, you know, just random mind wandering, basically. And, and but the most important thing is we show them the difference. And, and that's the critical thing, because that, that those two sets of brain frequencies were different. And so people often came in and said, oh, I can't meditate. This is rubbish. Mindfulness? Mindful what? I mean, this was 2015. You know, it's nowhere near as big as it is now. And, and we're like, look, it doesn't matter. It's okay. If you've got a brain and you're alive, you can meditate. And, and they would sit there transfixed, looking at this screen with these beautiful, colourful brain frequencies and this, this, this audio track, which was their own brain singing, if you like. And, and they would be dumbstruck. Our biggest problem at the end of it was getting people to leave. No one. It was like Pandora's box. They were, yeah. So, and it was funny because they'd go out and rebook and come straight back again. <laughs> so that, so, 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 and the guinea pig part of it, I mean, yes, that's where it started with that project. But then I went on, uh, I, at, at the end of that exhibition, um, I said, I've got another idea. <laughs> How about I take this meditation thing further? And Tristan was like, mm, okay, what are you thinking? And I said, well, actually, you know, people have been asking lots of questions during the exhibition and we've used mindfulness, but people are asking me about transcendental meditation and compassion meditation. I'm like, well, I'm quite limited in what I know. I'm like, what are those? 
And I said, actually, I would like to know. And I'd like to know how my brain frequencies would change. What's the difference between those techniques? And if there is a difference, could we see it in brain patterning? And of course, you know, he's a neuroscientist, so, um, and he had a PhD student, Barbara Jacks, and yeah, it turned into a massive project. And that, it was supposed to take a year. <laughs> Academia though, it doesn't move fast. So it took three years and I eventually worked my way through 12 different techniques and I wore the EEG headset pretty much for three years and recorded every single meditation session I did. And that started with mindfulness and it went through compassion, uh, Zazen, um, Kundalini Yoga, uh, Vipassana, and I ended with psychedelics. It was all about mind training. So, you know, uh, we, we, we did everything. And, um, and yeah, and then I wrote a book about the experience. In the end, this experiment proved that your brain changed depending yeah. on the kind of meditation you are doing. Absolutely. And that was really, really interesting. And so we can say yes. Um, the mind will respond in different ways, depending on whether, let's say, you're doing a technique, which of course I now know quite a lot about these techniques. You become a specialist in them when you're you know, immersing yourself in the way that I did. Transcendental meditation, for example, is a mantra. So you're repeating one word over and over and over and you start off repeating it consciously and then it kind of becomes like this unconscious experience. And, and that's a very different technique from, say, Zen, where you are sitting very immobile. Zen's an amazing um, sort of school of meditation. I love Zen. It's kind of got a great humor about it. But there's a lot of um, strictness. You have to do this counting. And, and if a thought pops into your head, you have to start again at one. And then you've got compassion meditation, where you are actively uh, generating emotion. And that and that's quite hard. I actually thought compassion meditation when I came to that, I was like, ah, you know, wishy-washy. I'm like, compassion what? Go around and love everyone. Oh my goodness. Well, that was what possibly one of the most powerful techniques I have ever tried. And we also included things like hypnosis. So so basically, if the scientists look at my brain data. And if I sat here and closed my eyes and put the EEG headset on, and we've done this, especially in the lab, if I close my eyes, put the head, if I'm wired up to the EEG, and I do one of those techniques based on the brain patterning and the signatures that they've got, they could all pretty much identify which one I'm doing, which is quite cool. I would sit there in silence with my eyes closed but my mind is doing significantly different things. And, 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 and we're still going through the data. I mean, it's a massive amount of data. There were other studies done as well at the same time, other group studies done. Well, I need and to read it. I need to read this study because this is something fantastic. Yeah, because ultimately what they were, it was phenomenological. So we're getting the EEG, the objective data, but what they were really recording was my human experience and we collected different dimensions for each technique so you know we'd have about 12 different dimensions that we would collect different uh, things like boredom or how emotional or or how focused i was and i and i reported that after every single 
um, meditation. So you've got this double strand of data. And so it's this moment. So rather than just at the end of a meditation going, how was that? Which is how traditional meditation research works. You've got moment by moment data. So you've got a much more potent picture of what your brain's doing <laughs> and what's happening inside your head. Oh, and, and then Vanessa, after that you started writing and has published already two books. So without giving too much away, can you tell us about your latest one? So the latest one is called Finding My Right Mind, One Woman's Experiment to Put Meditation to the Test. And it's pretty much what it says on the tin, but but it's not a guidebook. So this is there's loads of amazing books on meditation out there. But what I find is that, you know, people just go for mindfulness and then they're like, oh, it doesn't quite suit me. And the thing is, there's so many different ways you can develop self-awareness and get to know yourself and, and interact with the mind. And essentially meditation is mind management. So it's like anything, you know, you wouldn't necessarily do a Zumba class. Uh, you might prefer to learn to swim or jog. It's, and meditation is the same. It can be a bespoke experience. And so so my book is like, um, it walks you through all these different techniques. And again, it's not necessarily how to do them, but more the case of what happened when I did them. And it's a very funny warts and all book. So it's got science in it. So it's got a little bit of geeky stuff, but it's also got a lot of real life experience. And if you were looking to start a practice or you've got into a practice and you've got a bit, oh, I don't, you know, this isn't, I don't know where to go or then it's a it's a probably a great resource for somebody in that situation who would like to um, to learn about all the the vastly different ways in which we can um, yeah learn about ourselves because that's what meditation is yeah learning about yourself and you know sometimes I find it difficult to focus and some people ask me is there a proper way to meditate or I just need to sit and close my eyes. So do you have any tips for someone that is, is starting to meditate? Do you know, for me, the most important thing is to not see this as some big new thing and extra stress to put into your life. I find uh, it's always easier to adapt something you're already doing, right? So breathing meditations are a classic entry point in mindfulness but actually i think things like walking meditation is a really good entry point in fact to be honest just connecting your head to your body is a really good start i mean how many of us are just our heads are just this taxi that you know our body just follows you know it we're so disconnected in a in, in the embodiment sense in a bodily you know sense and so you can stand when you're doing the washing up and just consciously make the decision, the choice to just connect, to scan through your body and just connect to your neck, your torso, your hips, your legs and down to your feet. My feet are my anchor. And even if you just do that, even if you just stand washing up and just feel the weight of your feet, that is a form of mindfulness, right? That is... That is you making a conscious choice to be aware of where your body is. Because wherever your body is, right, that's your starting place. And so you can extend that. You know, if you just do that for a couple of seconds, a couple of minutes maybe, you can extend that when you're walking to the tube or the underground or the train. 
you know, just be aware of your feet. And then you can start to develop a, sit, a seated practice. And maybe, and I would always recommend join a group. Meditating alone is tough. It's hard work. Um, I run a meditation group for women in London for exactly that reason. Isolate. We, we do, we kind of do it all wrong in the West. We, we pluck out the bits that we want from, you know, Eastern practices and go, right, I'll just plug myself into an app. But actually the reality is we need... Um, in Buddhism, there's something called a Sangha, which is this community of people around you. And they advise on all aspects of your life. And it's this support network. And it's, you know, it, it works. <laughs> we don't do that here. So for me, start simple. Start just by standing. Start just by feeling your feet. Maybe a bit of a walking meditation. Take it from there. Go slow. Thank you. Vanessa, um, do you want to leave a message to our listeners? I think my message would be, and it's often I get asked, obviously, about the meditation journey I've been on. Um, most people, if I mention it, say, oh, I can't meditate. This is the most common. And, and, and it's it's just stuck out there that people think they can't meditate. Well, if you're alive and you have a brain, you can meditate. And in fact, you'll have experienced moments of meditation already. So I, I think it, there's a lot of barriers that need to be taken away. And I'm running a, a project at the moment in London called Park Bathe, which is using forest bathing. And this is using mindful sensory uh, exercises to connect us with nature and again with our body and our senses. And I think that's a very powerful thing. We need to stop complicating everything and making everything have to be perfect. Do some imperfect. Meditation is imperfect. You are imperfect. And that's brilliant. And that's exactly how we're meant to be. So I think we all just chill. Just go for a little bit of sensory awareness and just see where that goes. Love it. Love it. And Vanessa, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at vanessapotter.com. I'm on Instagram as Vanessa Potter Writes. Uh, that's with a W-R-I-T-E-S. Um, I'm on Twitter and Park Bathe, the London project, which is based in Crystal Palace Park. And we offer free forest bathing for anybody in the London area. Um, that's uh, Park Bathe at, uh, you'll find that on Instagram and Twitter as well. And Facebook. <laughs> the book the book um, is called Finding My Right Mind, and that's published by Welbeck. And you can find that through any online bookstore. It's at Amazon or a local independent bookstore. <laughs> um, but there's also an audio version as well. I know a lot of people listen to those these days. <laughs> Wonderful. And Vanessa, I'm so glad that you are just, you recovered and you were doing so many good things. And I wish you can keep writing, keep meditating, and you are always welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. Thank you very much for your participation. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's been a great ride. Yes, thank you. And it's not raining today in London. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it did rain. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. <laughs>